Hello, I'm James Woodcock from the Game and Gadget Podcast. This is podcast number 23, and today I have with me a regular now to the podcast, Aaron Fothergill. Thank you for joining us again, Aaron. Hi, yeah. And also, who's been on previously, but some time ago, he's been very good to join us again. It's Stevens. Hello there. So, Steve, um, let's go straight in and dive in with your good self. So, you've been busy. You've been writing again. <laughs> yes, I'm always writing. Um, go on, flash your book on screen. Sorry? Go on, flash your book on screen. I'll flash my book on screen. There we go. Look at that. So it's 201 Things for Better Game Writing by Steve Inns. And yes. Steve, for those who don't know you, Steve, give us a, just a sort of a little bullet point snapshot of your career before we get straight into your book. Well, I, I started out at Revolution Software um, as, a, as an artist originally, uh, then moved into a production role, and then um, moved on to the uh, writing and design side of things. And then after spending 11 years with Revolution Software, I uh, moved freelance and have worked for quite a number of uh, clients over the years. Uh, and this this one, 201 Things, is my third book on game writing. Um, and it's just basically, you know, sort of it's not meant as, as a, you know, kind of academic book. It's just, you know, sort of like based on my experience. Of you know, sort of like battling through all all the work um, I've done for for various clients, you know, sort of, and hopefully some people can learn from from uh, what has gone before, as it were. So it was quite ambitious, I think, because if this was a YouTube video, Steve, the be these are the ten top tips, and books I've seen mm. maybe like a hundred. You've gone in for not just two hundred; you've gone on for two hundred and one. So. First, um, do you have a lot of time on your hands to do 201? Where did that number come from? Where did that sort of come up as an idea for do 201 epic ideas? Um, there is there is a bit of kind of overlap in a few. Not not really not really overlap, but you know there there are themes. You know, sort of the the book itself is broken down into sections. So you know, sort of like a number of the the pieces. The things, if you like, will will cover you know sort of like things like um, voice acting and you know sort of um, how to get the best out of that things like this um, you know sort of and whilst that's not directly you know sort of going to improve the the voice the, the the writing itself it's obviously connected to the writing because you want the best out of it when you know so you get into the studio um so so you know sort of it's, it's broken down into a number of of areas but um but it was a pretty hard thing to write um you know sort of the idea seemed oh yeah you know sort of like lots, lots of you know short short pieces um about each one of these these different things um and it just <laughs> It just took ages, um, because idea for your next book then. Two hundred and one things about writing a book on writing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, don't write a book on two hundred and one things. Um, but you know, sort of, when you write in any other type of book, you kind of get into a flow with it. Um, but breaking it up like this interrupted that flow in in many respects. So it actually. It's been on the go for about three years. 
Ooh. on and off in between other things so, so <laughs> a very different task to what I, I thought it would be so it wasn't 201 weeks at least you didn't quite hit that target <laughs> <laughs> but see um, the programmer yeah. phrase isn't it um, we do these things not because they are hard not because they are easy but because we thought they were going to be easy <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant! Yeah, oh, definitely. Yes, so it's think, a labour of love. You must be very glad you can actually hold a physical copy in your hand now. Yes, yes. I mean, it's it's always good to share your experience. I think you know, sort of. I mean, I've given a lot of talks um, and and workshops and stuff like this over the years, different parts of of um, of the UK and the world. You know, sort of. Um, but you know, sort of. Sometimes I think that you know there is a danger that that we can lose this knowledge. Um, you know, it's, it's like Tony's book. You know, Tony Warriner. Um, he his book is is a real kind of like history of not only revolution, but it's it's a personal history for him, and you know relates very much to the growth of the of the games industry. And I think that's such a valuable thing, you know. Sort of, and and we've got to remember that that a lot of knowledge and experience exists within the industry, you know. Sort of, and and you know, sort of, it, it it's important, I think, to pass that on when we can. And certainly, you know, that's what I aim to do. And I also like, you know, sort of, I aim to keep the books reasonably low low priced, because you see some of these books that I saw one. And they were charging like under hundred pounds for the um, hardback version, and you think it's a book really worth that, <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, I don't know who's pro- profiting the most from that, whether it's the publisher or the uh, or the writer. But I don't know, it just seems an awful lot of money. That seems to be a thing with um, you're saying it's not an academic book, which is good. Um, you know, basically, uh, it's nice that uh, with any book that. Literally anybody who's got a vague interest can can pick up something and just glean some extra knowledge. Um, this is the whole thing. I, I do like finding out things that I don't. I'm not necessarily that's that's my specialist subject or anything. I know anything about, but finding out something about something is always good. You see, I think that the, the super price books tend to be where you get the actual academic books, where someone is touting a whole load of qualifications. And normally it's like this book has to be bought because you need it for particular coursework. So then they can charge a lot more because they know people have to have to buy it, you know. And, yeah, and that's, uh, that's a shame, isn't it? You know, sort of when when people are trying to effectively exploit a captive audience, <laughs> you know, and I think... Well, it's the best way to make a profit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I guess I think differently. I mean, I, I want, I'd rather, you know, get my my book into the hands of more people and make a, a small profit on each one than, hmm. than, you know, sort of make a bigger profit from a smaller number of people. Yeah. You know, particularly in these times when, you know, sort of like education costs so much. Um, you know, sort of, and I think that, you know, just just keeping things as simple and, and you know, I mean, I'm making a profit, but, 
you know it's not it's not going to make <laughs> no never going to be rich from the, from these books yeah i mean that's back to the, the thing of i don't think artists of any sort should have to pay to do their art they should they should make enough money to at least live on doing their art no one should be suffering for it because there's, there's no point um but yeah it's not we're not in it to make millions we'd like to if it happened but not not at other people's cost you know it's, yeah uh, yeah i think sometimes there are people in the games industry whose aim is to make money first and foremost um hmm. and i think that that's always a shame um whereas you know sort of you get people who create games because they they love creating games and yeah. sometimes they're they're extremely success successful um but it's the love of creating the game that's come first and and the success is just because the event happened to to create a great game you know and, and i think mm. <laughs> you can always you can always tell which way around those things are <laughs> Yeah, it's it's nice to be able to balance that of work. Like I, I I'm I'm particularly bad at um, knowing exactly what to do to be the most you know vicious way to make money, which means I don't usually. I I've, I've got a long history of great games that have never actually made me any money or cost me money. Um, but then again, when I've worked with people who actually know what they're doing as far as the money side is concerned, um, and they are very much interested in making a profit um i get to do the fun thing i, I get to do the game that that's fun for me and will be fun for other people but also with the balance this is always the thing it's always the balance thing it makes money so you know everyone's happy we, we all get get paid and um can actually go on and do the next thing that the difficulty is when it gets into the insane levels where it's purely about making money and the game starts suffering and it becomes more about a big spreadsheet full of numbers to try and make as much as possible off people without worrying too much about whether there's a game in there. Mm. And yeah, that that, yes. is, that does it does suffer then. Yeah. So when it comes to game writing, how does it kind of differ from writing a book or writing a short story? I mean, what what's the art of a game writer? What as if you were trying to promote your story to a publisher or developer how would be the best way to format and present that um i have no idea <laughs> honestly <laughs> i have never presented a, a story idea to a to a developer or a, or a publisher um mostly um developers come to me or you know, sort of like they, they may advertise that they're looking for a writer and I, I respond and, you know, so so they have maybe a game idea and they want a writer to help with the story side of that, that idea. So you might have somebody who's, who's doing some sort of fantasy, you know, sort of like dungeon crawl or something like this. Um, they don't know how to, how to, you know, sort of like maybe, you know, stick a story on top of it or to go along with it or however they um and so they come to me and 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 that's when that's where most of my work comes from um i mean okay so how did you get your foot in the door in the first place then because you must have got to a point where you were recognizable and known for that where, where, where was the starting point to that um well i think i, I mean 
without doubt, I have, I have Revolution Software to thank for that. I mean, we're getting to work on, on, well, the first game I worked on was Beneath Steel Sky, but I was just doing some sprite animations and some uh, and a few background paintings. <laughs> so it was, I mean, when, when I worked on Broken, the first two Broken Sword games, I was producer. Um, but what that did was that, that put me into contact with all the different aspects of, of game development in the sense of, you know, talking to um, the programmers and the artists and the animators and, you know, kind of the writers and, and, and so on. And then, you know, so by the time we, we got to doing In Cold Blood, you know, sort of I started working on the writing and the design side of things. Um, and it just... It just happened because of the environment that was a revolution, you know. So, uh, you know, and I, I was very fortunate. So, the, by the time I went freelance, you know, sort of, I had enough of a, a reputation to to get me get myself some work, but also the fact that there weren't that many game writers around. Not not freelance game writers. I mean, in the UK, there were about half a dozen of us who who had really kind of set. Um, ourselves up as as such um, <laughs> and the, the last ECTS um, down in London we, we all met up and that was about 2004 maybe 2005 um, and now you know sort of there are, there are huge numbers of game writers but um, you know sort of a lot more games recognize you know studios and, and developers recognize the need for for good narrative and good dialogue and so on so although <clears throat> there are more of us i think there's a lot more um work to to keep us sustained so so actually approaching approaching developers or, or or publishers with with ideas isn't isn't the kind of thing. It's not like you know you've written a film script and you you send it out to producers or you might send it out to production companies and, and stuff like this to see if you can get it made. Um, it just it, it practically never happens like that in the games industry. So, what's the kind of information you receive then? To here's the pitch that they're giving you, as in here's the this the basic gist of the game write me a story what's like the most bare bones requirements you've ever been given where you're thinking well, what am i supposed to make out of this or has it always <laughs> been quite detailed and it's not been a problem well, it, it does vary an awful lot um i mean if you go back to so blonde i mean you know sort of like i worked on so blonde a couple of years after um i left revolution and you know kind of they didn't really have a story at all they had some ideas um, they, they they had some um, character sketches and they had a couple of um, background locations drawn up, um, and they wanted they wanted basically a, a seventeen year old American girl who, you know, sort of like very self absorbed and does does nothing without a phone and a credit cards and stuff like this. Suddenly to be stranded on this this desert island and have to sort of like you know learn to cope. Um, and, and that was, that was basically it. So I had to write the story and, and, you know, sort of like, you know, create some sort of story arc for her so that, you know, sort of, although she started very, um, you know, kind of 
you know, sort of very useless and, and very annoying and stuff like this. We couldn't keep her that way throughout the whole game, or as you know, players would get bored. So we had to develop the, the arc of her learning to, to fend for herself, basically. Um, but then, you know, sort of like sometimes, I mean, I, I recently got presented with a story that was fairly complete. Um, and it was a game that, that had been, you know, sort of in development for a while. And so they had this story document. <clears throat> and the first thing they asked was to go through the story document and, and give some sort of analysis of, of where it, you know, where it basically was and what, where its strengths and weaknesses and stuff like this. Um, and then based on that, I got the gig for, you know, going a bit further. So it's sort of, that's in, in progress at the moment. But, you know, obviously I can't go into details, but, but basically there was a fairly substantial story document. But, um, you know, it obviously needed a lot of work. And hopefully, you know, sort of between us, we can, we can bring that into, into something special. So. And do you think the quality of game writing has changed at all over the years? Has it got any better or any worse in general? Are the expectations changed in any way? Or is that the question? Yeah. <laughs> is that tip number oh. 202? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where are we? Two hundred and two. Oh, let's see. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't I didn't count wrong. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, definitely. Writing has definitely got better. I mean, that, that's not to say you don't find games with with poor writing, but then you know, sort of, you find lots of things with poor writing. You know, sort of. Oh, what was I watching? I was watching the first two episodes of Willow. I don't know if you've watched that. No, no, um, it's in the trailer, unfortunately, but not, but not the full thing yet. And I thought it was rather charming, and and had lots going for it. But the dialogue, I thought, was quite oh, I don't know, weak, shall we say, at best. But some this of that is... goes back to your thing about working with voice actors part of the book. It's not just what you write; it's what you write for particular actors voice actors and how they interpret it and how you work with them to interpret it the way you mean it and stuff so it could well be it was particularly brilliantly written dialogue but the actors just mangled it or the other way around it was terrible dialogue but the actors are like i can't do anything with this <laughs> well yes yeah, sounds that, a bit that's... like the lord of the rings tv series where the backdrops and environments on that are absolutely stunning you can see where the money's gone and the costumes look great, and then they start talking, and you're thinking, okay, I'm five episodes in yet. What's happened? I'm still waiting for something to happen. And I'm like, this isn't right. That's not how it should be. Yeah, yeah. But that's Lord of the Rings, generally. But yeah. <laughs> I have a thing about Lord of the Rings. It, it's basically The Hobbit remixed as a 12-inch. You know, yeah. Lord of the Rings could have been a lot shorter and a lot better. It just from the book onwards, you know. <laughs> oh dear, you'll not be watching the extended versions. <laughs> well, I mean, the whole the whole second book and film is basically hobbits whinging their way across Mordor while everyone else dies to distract someone. It's like, pointless. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then the, the whole Tom Bombadil thing was, I don't know, just seemed pointless to me. So hopefully mm -hmm. Willow improves in episode three. Yeah. 
and the new Lord of the Rings TV series improves in season two, but we'll, we'll have to wait a, a, lot of, a, a lot of series are doing that, though. Some of them are really, like, you just don't get it for about three or four episodes, and then suddenly they work out what they're doing, and it gels, and it all kind of goes great. Yeah, yeah. And I then can't wait till season get, like, four. <laughs> yeah, then, then you get ones like Game of Thrones where it gets to season seven, and it's like, oh, we've got to do this in a hurry. And it all just go completely to pieces. <laughs> I made the big mistake of watching episode one of Game of Thrones. And I thought, oh, my mum might enjoy this. Little did I know that the first episode, there was incest. And I thought, okay, <laughs> not one of James's best ideas. Mm. So, yeah, I didn't watch any further episodes with my mother. I, I think I'd lost after that part of the plot device. But um, one of the things I've been trying lately, talking of Blast of the Past, is the original Xbox Live, which was killed by Microsoft in 2010. Um, there's still a number of games that, even with background, background, backwards compatibility, rather, have not made it to the Xbox 360 or the Xbox One, even though there's a great number of games. There's certain titles that haven't. Uh, one of those titles which I played to absolute death when it was out on the original Xbox and purely fully online. The single player was pretty average, but online it was like something else. And that was Midtown Madness 3. And it was basically an open world where you had your car, you played tag. There was hunter mode where you get police cars chasing you down. You could have it in a much smaller zone where you'd be chasing each other or just exploring and making up your own games as you went. And when there was a very limited number of games available online for the platform, so many people were playing that one single game. And still I have a lot of friends now who are from those days of Xbox Live. And that's always been something I've taken great pleasure in. It was such a... You met a lot of people with similar interests. Um, but now, then they killed it in 2010, understandably, because they wanted to push Xbox 360 further and later Xbox One to have more capabilities. And the original Xbox was holding it back. But that left us with the gap that there were certain games we still couldn't play online. So there have been some ways of doing, I think it's like they call it tunneling software or something like that, where you plug it into your PC and then, but that's more for System Link. So any games that support System Link, where you connect your consoles together, then that would provide that bridge and you could play those technically online with other people, rather than it being someone next to you. But that didn't fill the gap for the Xbox Live elements. Well, Insignia, a third-party free tool, has basically filled that gap. And I was lucky enough to get an invitation after I signed up. You do need to have a modded Xbox, but you can do that so easily. I mean, I did that easily probably 10 years ago. It's just, a, I think it was a saved game hack I did with Splinter Cell, which opened it up with a soft mod. And then I could put whatever I wanted on the console pretty much. And back in the day, I used XBMC. Xbox Media Center, which uh, turned into Kodi later on, K-O-D-I. But with your now modded Xbox, you can connect to this Insignia service and play a lot of Xbox Live-enabled online games. And the list is growing all the time. They're adding additional compatibility. But I was playing Midtown Madness 3, and I was so happy to find a few people on there. And I was a bit worried with this being a sort of 
third-party service and unpaid for that there's going to be lag cars are going to be jumping around the screen randomly because i remember seeing that in the day back when the xbox first came out that not everybody had broadband even though they were supposed to they found cheating ways of getting their dial-up modem to connect to the xbox so that was always fun but there were people playing and it was just insane to get a blast from the past given it's been 12 years since that service was last online so all credit to Insignia. Definitely have a look at Insignia.live. I've had a lot of fun with it. Um, and as I say, the games are increasing in number virtually on a weekly basis. They've just added a number of racing games. But just the nostalgia factor alone, seeing the original Xbox dashboard and the weird sound effects in the background. And all the, I, don't know why, I don't know why the Xbox had that. I guess it was supposed to sound like computeristic and there's stuff going on in the background. But even going through the Xbox Live interface on the dashboard and seeing how many friends you've got online, and it was just insane nostalgia because it's been so long since I've seen that screen. So I've, I've had a blast and I can't wait for them to add to it. And uh, I just love how the community have spent years to get this in place for no financial remuneration. It's just been the fact of, we'd like to do this. Let's see if we can do it. And they have done. And I guess the only thing that's going to hold them back a little bit is Xbox Live originally would have provided downloadable content, which I'm sure legally they're never going to be able to do that. And also, if there's a patch for a game, that would often be delivered through Xbox Live um, I know there's a few problems at the minute where people have got different versions of the game. So one person may have a patched version on their console, another one may have an unpatched version. So there's a mismatch and they can't play together yet. So there's still some things that need to be figured out. But the fact they've even got this far is somewhat of a minor miracle. So all credit to them. It's also, Microsoft Legal decide it's a bit of an issue and uh, decide to stomp on it. I think as it's Microsoft, they've got probably the best chance because if it was Nintendo or Sony, I think they'd have very next to no chance. But Microsoft seemed to be a little bit more nurturing of this kind of stuff. Mm. So I think they're going to be all right as long as they don't cross a certain line. And I'm hoping behind the scenes they've probably already had conversations with Microsoft to discuss what those lines might be and how they can kind of coexist. But uh, certainly from the top. I know know for, um, yeah. For live, Microsoft's very protective about the security of the service itself. Um, I remember when we were developing 360 stuff, it was, uh, there was quite a big deal about how it wasn't just a standard network thing with you know ordinary, so it was basically going back to proper, very serious service centers and everything with security to, to avoid the system being corrupted, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose the good news is this isn't happening into that original service at all. They've just reverse engineered it, so hopefully it's uh, not going to cross into any of that problems. Should be good, yeah. So if Mm. anyone from the Insignia team is watching this, we'd love to get you on the Game & Gadget podcast and discuss this major achievement because it's no small feat at all. No small feat, is it? That's that's hard. To to reverse engineer something like that is a bit of a, a challenge to put it mildly. Yeah. And in other sort of retro news, one thing I came across was also there's been the Atari 50 collection where you can play a lot of games from Atari's vast 50-year history, of course. And on Mm. it was a system we know and smile about, the Atari Jaguar. 
which was a console that didn't quite take off, to say the least. <laughs> it gave it a bit of a shot. There were some good titles on it, but, you know, it was a rather crowded room at the time of different console devices available when everyone and their mother thought they could release a console. So we'll skip past the CD32 quickly. And the Atari, <laughs> the Atari Jaguar um, was had a, its own from scratch emulator written, I believe, for that collection. So the games that were from the Jaguar on that collection were on a brand new emulator. And amazingly, again, in one of those minor miracle moments, which Whitehouse who developed the emulator, has been able to release it to the public separately as its own emulator oh. with 100% compatibility with the original Atari Jaguar library. Now, granted, no jokes about how small the library is, please, gentlemen. But regardless, 100% is still great. The fact they've got it to be able to be public released is great. It's not open source, unfortunately. It's just the emulator itself. But who knows? Maybe one day. But I think, again... That is some great news for retro nostalgia and enthusiasts who want to maybe have never tried the Jaguar in the first place and now have got the opportunity thanks to this emulator and, of course, the Atari 50 collection. See, I, I still don't count Atari as being 50 years old. It's, Atari is about 25 years old when it died, and the current Atari is just whoever bought the name. It's never been Atari since after they died post-Jaguar. Uh, it's just been a bunch of people selling and basically selling the patent and, and making money off the patents rather than anything else. <laughs> this is sadly also true. Um, hmm. I think Atari tried it as more of a publishing name for a while. Remember well, quite... they went bust. This is the yeah. Atari, Atari went bust and another company, same as with Amiga, uh, yeah, Com Commodore went bust. And another company bought the Amiga name and have been using it ever since to try and make money on different things. And the real Amiga fan stuff going on and, and, and actual Amiga stuff is, again, mostly people who aren't anything to do with the people who own the brand Amiga. Uh, and likewise, Atari, they're just, yeah, they're basically just a bunch of suits who happen to own a, own a copyright and some trademarks and, and, um, and rather a lot of patents that they quite nasty with them usually <laughs> so, Sega's yeah. almost the same i mean thankfully they didn't go bust or bankrupt or anything like that but after the dreamcast mm. which was a, you know it was a beautiful console even at the time very probably very underappreciated but i think the hype around playstation 2 just kind of blew it out of the water a bit but, you know, Sega's been releasing and publishing titles for all platforms. I mean, I don't know Ooh. how many versions of Sonic I have to play of the original Sonic <laughs> one for it to count as I've played Sonic the Hedgehog. But I must have played it on every uh, platform, it feels like. No, yeah. I remember having a very old phone. It must have been a not... Uh, it's actually probably a Motorola, actually, a flip phone, and playing a very crude version of Sonic the Hedgehog, which had terrible, terrible slowdown. And I don't think it had any sound or music either. But it was Sonic the Hedgehog on my flip phone Motorola. Hmm. And again, there's about 50,000 collections you can play Sonic the Hedgehog 1 in. They've just released another collection where you can play, but it's built on a new engine. But still, we've played a lot of Sonic the Hedgehog 1. Yeah. And, and I've but got the original Sega Mega yeah. Drive 2 just to add insult to injury. Yeah. But Sega have, like you say, Sega have kept going. And it's not just 
banks making money off their old stuff, even though they again they, they've done what they can to try and keep it relevant, apart from the scary Sonic the Hedgehog with teeth film thing. But yeah, the film actually turned out to be quite good once they took the teeth out. Yeah, it's all about <laughs> but, um, the teeth that freaked us out. The teeth, yeah, it was. Oh, it was just, yeah, I remember seeing that trailer. Like, oh god! Um, but they they have actually published and worked on on non old titles. Like, for instance, I played a game called um, called Motorsport Manager, which is a really good uh, motor, motor racing team game. It wasn't allowed to be Formula One, but it was very Formula One-like. You manage your team, and it's very good management sim. And that was on, on mobile originally, uh, specifically on the iPhone originally. And you, the, the guy did a new version and brought it up bigger. And then basically Sega bought it and made it bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's now a major title. So um, they're not just sort of sitting on their laurels and cashing in on trademarks and, and patents and stuff. However struggling Sega is or isn't, they've gone out and actually tried to push things forward and just do more things, which is good. Yeah, but unfortunately for me, it's got me nostalgic rose-tinted yeah, yeah. glasses <laughs> on. If I want anything Sega, I mean, um, they've done a lot of collaboration with a development house called Sumo Digital. And mm. I've had uh, a lot of fun talking to like one of the producers for Sumo Digital. And one of the games they produced was uh, Sonic All-Stars Racing, which was, <coughs> excuse me, a bit of a nostalgia feast because it was not just Sonic, but it was all the characters from different Sega games. And then they produced a, produced a sequel, which I think was like the perfect sequel. It's better than even the recent racing games, called Transformed, where you'd race on the sea, you'd race on land, and you'd race in the air, and it would change and transform as you were doing the same circuit. It was really fantastic. Didn't run that well on the Xbox 360 or PS3, I don't think. Didn't quite hit 30 all the time, but it had redone music the levels were like all the things i would remember playing on the mega drive back in the day like golden axe for example and then from the saturn panzer dragoon and and it was just like this is insane this is pure this is fantastic and they've kind of gone away from that a bit now and it's more all about the sonic landscape and world because i guess there's a certain age group who play these racing games where what's golden axe what's panzer dragoon and what's all these other titles that are sort of hinted at we don't know um, but yeah, they've uh, they've certainly got into the nostalgia stuff. I mean, there was Sega All Stars Tennis, I think there was on the Xbox 360 as well. That was quite uh, based on like the Virtua Tennis type style engine. And that was pretty good as well. So yeah, if it, you can make money out of nostalgia, there's absolutely no way to excuse that but they can do it properly as well and i think there's been some titles where they've got it absolutely spot on but um, you know there's so many titles where you think oh geez just leave it let it die let it die it was brilliant the original version was great don't do it anymore don't do a sequel oh they're <laughs> gonna do a sequel don't do a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same with films though isn't it you think the first one was so perfect don't do a sequel and then someone throws millions at the act and they go, yeah, I'll do a sequel now. Now's the right well, time. There's, of course, the, the trailers now for the new Indiana Jones film where Harrison Ford's been digitally de-aged. 
Is it for the entire yeah, thing or just a section? I think it's just a section, I, isn't I, it? I, I don't know, but even just a section, it's worrying, you know. It's, uh... Yeah. I'm never, I'm never fully convinced with that de-aging. Um, they've used it in a few films, haven't they? Um, i trying to think. I, 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 yeah. But, I just um, saw... Um, uh, a, a, a Disney have just done a promo video of a new de-aging system they've invented. And it's like, whoa, that's scary. It's actually an age control system. It's not even, you literally can take the source image, you, look, you train it on a person that you want to mess with their age. And literally you just go to a slider and go like that. And then <laughs> young, old, young, old, anywhere in between, live while they're actually acting. It's it's scary. Yeah. All built yeah. from an iOS app for three ninety nine. Probably not initially, but give it a, give it a year. Yeah. And it's, um, like all uh, it's yeah, like all this AI really... art, isn't it? You know, sort of. I mean, some of that is a bit scary. Mm. <laughs> you know, sort of. I mean, well, uh, yeah. I mean, some of it is a bit weird. I saw, I saw one that somebody had created of this semi-nude woman, and and for some reason she had this kind of like like third leg or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's and, and there was one where I don't know they just. They put they put a, a boobs round a belly instead of on you know, a chest, and I was just like, "What? what how did they, How does this happen?" You know, but some of it is actually really, really scary. And in the fact that I think there will be a lot of artists will be in you know, a sort of struggling to make money in the future. Well, tip number two hundred and three, um, I'm sure <laughs> it's probably going to be about AI writers. I mean, have you ever tried any of these and seen what it's chucked out, Steve, just as a um, sort of curiosity? I've seen some comical um, examples that people have posted on, on Twitter or Facebook, or, or, you know, sort of, and it's like there was one, you know, kind of, the showed an AI, a lot of kind of adverts for lawyers, you know, sort of um, legal services, you know, kind of we'll sue the pants off anybody you like kind of thing. Um, and after I'd seen a load of these, they got it to write a script for one. <laughs> you know, does your does your boss um, remove your lungs without, without your consent? <laughs> you know, and it's like, what? Where on earth does this come? You know, and that's that's where I think we are at the moment with that. Yeah, um, it's still learning. I mean, it, it is a learn. It, mm. That's the scary thing. It is learning, but mostly from. This is why you get all the weird stuff. Is is because it's learning by looking at all the stuff everyone's been posting to Facebook and everything everyone's been posting to the net, and it's scraping from databases that it's not even supposed to use a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and um, you know, and, and the end result is that when it's like, for instance, there's a coding one. That, that Microsoft applied to GitHub. Copilot. It'll aut they automatically code for you. Problem is it scraped GitHub, of which rather a lot is open source under various licenses that isn't allowed to be used for training AI. So it's been trained potentially illegally on stuff that's not even supposed to be used for that purpose, let alone the stuff that it's copying and pasting that isn't without attribution and, and so on. And the same thing's going on, but we just don't realise it with the art and with the with the, the, the text and so on. I mean, but it does end up with some funny results. A friend of mine posted one today. He uh, He's trying a new 
picture one. And he, and he said, it turns out the AI doesn't understand what a two-handed sword is. You're trying to do a, a Dungeons and Dragons picture of a, of a fighter with a two-handed sword. And there's all these swords with like hands sticking out of them. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> But the hours of entertainment it's creating for us, if nothing else. (laughs) So it's going to get better over time for sure. But um, yeah, yeah, just trying different things and seeing how it interprets what you enter. I mean, it's like when you talk to these voice assistants, which, you know, sometimes they don't understand the most basic question. You think, what is it doing? And then you ask it something, you think, that's spooky. How did it figure that out? Or they have priorities. I found that with Siri the other day. Um, I uh, I've set up my I put my Christmas decorations up, and what I've done is I've set up my uh, Christmas tree lights around the living room and on the Christmas tree and everything, and I put them into a smart plug. Of course, and, yeah, and as you as you do, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and I've got a I basically if I if I in in the voice of Noddy Holder do it, it's Christmas to to uh, my voice assistant, um, it will actually switch on all the lights and switch to my Christmas playlist and start that playing and switch off the main lights and stuff. So I end up in a very Christmassy living room. And I wanted to use bar humbug to switch it off. But <laughs> Siri prioritizes the word bar for finding the nearest bar. Which of course. About developers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is brilliant. How much does it know about you, Aaron? <laughs> <laughs> well, it knows my nearest bar, but I, I, I just have to look out my window for my nearest bar. So oh, all right. So that's not much of an interesting yeah. bit of information. Yeah. Well, let's hope the AI never scrape Elon Musk on Twitter, who's got himself in quite a lot of problems just recently. He's caused quite a mass <laughs> exodus. And how long this will continue for, who knows? It seems to have been a bit of a quiet week, at least. But there's been one controversy after another. And without going into too much detail, I have indeed made the switch to Mastodon. But there's many other kind of variations out there. Uh, There was one called Hive, uh, which is an iOS or Android app only with no web interface. But they've had problems because there's been potential security vulnerabilities. So they've literally had to shut the service down. And I don't know if it's come back up yet, but that's certainly problematic. But they've only got three people looking after it at the minute. So no one's been quite mm. anticipating the Twitter explosion that has been the result of Elon Musk getting Twitter. But uh, I'm happy to use Twitter in the sense of I will follow the people who have not yet made it to Mastodon. And unfortunately, a lot of the things I'll read like news outlets like in Gadget and The Verge, they've not moved their services, or at least keeping a copy of them on Mastodon as far as I've told. There's lots of bots that are trying to do it, but they seem to stop updating after a while. Maybe they get prevented for whatever reason. So I'll still read Twitter. I'll still interact with the people who are on there, but as far as me posting new content, you're not going to see very much. I'm all on Mastodon, and I'm posting there almost daily with like some of the retro things I'm up to. And, and that's my new home for that kind of thing. But it's also got me thinking about other platforms and how healthy it is to be on them and facebook i'm trying to limit my usage on there a bit so i'll have to keep it because i've got the pixel refresh facebook group and things like that but uh you know if it probably wasn't for that and the fact that there's probably a few friends i'd want to keep in touch with where facebook is the only way to do it i'd be like well that's another thing i'd be quite happy to pull the plug on hmm. so aaron how do i get you onto mastodon <laughs> 
That was the lead. It was a long build-up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could have tried actually. I'll um, I'll try and sort some time out this weekend, maybe to to have a look. Because um, I'm I'm only on Twitter. I'm only basically browsing Twitter now. I'm not really posting any new content on there. Um, I'm more of a again. It's it's what you're following on there. Like, for instance, there's a lot of Formula One teams post on on there. So at the moment, that's quiet, of course, because it's the end of season. Yeah. And there's a lot of other developers I follow on there. Lots of random people I've ended up. And I can't, a lot of people, I can't even remember why I followed them. It's usually someone else recommending I follow them. Um, it's that James so Woodcock person, guy. Who the hell is he? <laughs> yeah, it's like, this person's interesting. Follow them. Okay, fair enough. And then you, you'll just get random posts from them. And every now and again, something interesting can come up. I mean, like one of the ones I follow is the, the QIs, you know, the TV yeah. show. They have an interesting facts thing. Yeah. One of which they posted today was apparently 89% of people who said they were quitting Twitter to Mastodon or other services are still on Twitter. But again, it's like <laughs> you and me, because I'm not going to be using Twitter for anything serious in future. Mm. But then again, I'm not actively using Twitter. And at some point, I'm quite happy to just drop it entirely. Um, and it's the same as with you like, on Facebook. I've got I use Facebook, but that's mostly now purely because there's people on there I wouldn't be able to talk to if I wasn't on Facebook. I don't yeah. like to actively post anything useful on Facebook. I, I post the odd silly thing on there for my, for my friends, but that's about it. Do you remember Friends Reunited? Oh, yeah, that caused me so much trouble. <laughs> that, was, that was awful from the start, though, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, that like disappeared in a blink of an eye when Facebook came along, and then everyone, like, oh, we can t- we can talk to our old school friends. Oh, we can talk to family. Oh, we can post pictures of kittens, and it well, then, the and then it all turned into can, politics. <laughs> the important thing is we can talk to old friends and family for free, which was what Friends United didn't let you do. Mm. Friends United, the free free layer was actually quite basic, and you yeah. had to pay. To actually really, you know, they actually talk to your, your old schoolmates, and then everyone had school reunions, and everyone realised why you didn't talk to them since school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Friends reunited yeah, the at least gave the excuse. Thing about friends yeah. united reunited was the fact that it was often difficult to find those friends because uh, mm. of a few people. I thought, oh yeah, I won't mind reconnecting with those, and I didn't find anyone. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it was, it was it was quite poor. I thought, generally speaking, um, early, and I think early days of the technology as well. You know, uh, yeah, search technology was true. really quite new. Yeah, but the, I mean, as far as Twitter and Facebook and and, and such go, um, I must admit that that I'm using them exactly the same as I did a year ago and, and what have you. Um, you know, I, I, there are a lot of good people posting interesting stuff. You know, it's like it's like everything. You know, if you if you look for the good stuff, you'll find it. I mean, you got to wade through mm. the crap, but <laughs> yeah, the good stuff is there. You know, sort of, and and interesting people are still posting. You know, and and because I, you know, sort of have these books coming out, and I, you know, sort of, I actively look for freelance work. Then I feel as though I've got to have a presence on all of all of them. So I mean, I've joined Master. Mm. But at the moment, I don't see myself quitting Twitter. Um, no, unless I, I don't unless think it just can. dies. Yeah, exactly that. So, so I, I, I have think a very it depends on yeah. Sorry, I, I have a very different outlook, you know, because I see it as a kind of 
part of my promotional marketing and you know as well as kind of like oh god look what the government's doing now <laughs> you know so i do i do you know kind of retweet a lot of a lot of political stuff um which probably probably puts a lot of people off my books <laughs> but but it's i think you know i mean there's an awful i mean musk is clearly clearly an idiot and and he can't seem to decide you know the same thing two days running um but you know sort of it's just yeah, know, giving some, everybody somebody, the very sign come in and you know said oh yeah we can we can get him to spend 40 odd billion on this when it isn't worth anywhere near that <laughs> so yeah I don't know. No, it's been an insane um, yeah. month or so with the whole Twitter sphere. Yeah. And I, I think that's going to be a lot of people's opinion. There's going to be those who can kind of cut them off for completely and all credit to them to being able to do that. But, you know, there's a, this isn't like a watershed moment where everyone's just going to move and move to the same place. People are going to disperse. And although Mastodon, at least at the moment, seems to be the favourite, there's plenty of other choices out there. And I guess the challenge is, wherever you move, you want that to be the ideal setting. Now, for me, Mastodon kind of fit that because of the the Fediverse, which sounds almost like the Federation, and it just makes me think of Star Trek and Klingons and Romulans. But regardless, because there's no sort of overarching lord to the whole thing and people can have their own distinct communities that just so happen to connect with each other if they so choose to have it connect or to federate with each other as they call it then it's kind of a little bit more protected there's no ads there's no algorithms now algorithms aren't a necessarily bad thing but it seems to be very tuned on a lot of these social platforms that the things it will know it will get the most activity from are those ones that make us angry or the nasty ones or whatever else. I don't want to see those. I don't. I want to see a t natural timeline and just go through that as I wish. And on Mastodon, it just lets me do all of that. Um, I'm not being employed by Mastodon in any way. I'd just like to say I'm just enjoying the platform. And maybe this is almost like those early days of Xbox Live where I met sort of kindred spirits early on because it was a smaller subset of people who were looking for a very targeted sort of interest. So if you hashtag, for me, most of it's retro gaming. So it's hashtag retro gaming. You find a lot of people who think the same as you. And naturally, it's going to feel very more welcoming, more friendly. And a lot of the comments have been fantastic. And I've had some great sharing of knowledge from me to them and them to me. It's been wonderful. And I hope that continues. <clears throat> But, uh, yeah, Twitter, I'll just think, be there hovering in the background, but Mastodon is where I want to be. But I guess also wanting to anybody, if you are moving away from Twitter, even mostly or just partially, just make sure the place you're going to isn't just going to be another Twitter, otherwise you may as well not move at all. I think in 10 years' time you'll be doing a podcast about, you know, how, how nostalgic um, all these uh, social media channels were <laughs> myspace <laughs> msn <Yeah>. messenger aol <laughs> yeah. yahoo messenger icq we could do it right now <laughs> you remember skype <laughs> still, i still use it 
I know. It's still, it's still kind of got its place, hasn't it, Skype? Yeah. Uh, Somebody the other I, day I said, give, give oh, do you want to go yeah. Skype or Zoom? I said, oh, Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've gone through. Given the way uh, the um, AI AI stuff is learning, you know, at the moment on on text, pictures, music, everything at the moment, and the social networks are going, and and every, how the algorithm is developing to try and drag us in to everything. I think in ten years' time, we'll probably be nostalgic about how nice it was with you know, before the robot overlords were running us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're not. Well, we're not the podcast will be created by you know sort of AI rendering of of the three of us, yeah, you know, yeah, of, yeah, and I, I'll I'll yeah. be able to look very young in them because. <laughs> yes, well, no, no, the usual, slider, the usual, right, literally right have a slider. Yeah, <laughs> the usual will be to decide whether they they can they they prefer old Steve or young Steve. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I was on. Um, um, TikTok. <laughs> and I was looking through the filters, and there was one for a Santa Claus, and it put this this white beard on and, and hat on me, and it was brilliant. It looked really good. I mean, some of the filters I think are awful, but that one looked really good. <laughs> and on that note, as we imagine, Steve Ince in his full Santa Claus gear. Thank you again for listening and watching to another Game and Gadget podcast. And from us all, we'll see you next time.